Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. When Eric Carl mused about why his book, The Very Hungry Caterpillar, was such a success, he said, children need hope. You, little caterpillar, can grow up to be a beautiful butterfly. We remember Carl, who died Sunday. First, though, questions about the origin of COVID-19 intensified this week after President Biden ordered U.S. intelligence agencies to redouble efforts to determine whether the virus jumped from an animal to a human or escaped from a research lab in Wuhan. But the origin narratives, especially the lab theory, have been deeply politicized. David Frum helps us navigate the politics right after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Groups of scientists have begun making public appeals for more investigations into the origins of COVID-19. And this week, President Biden ordered intelligence agencies to work harder to try to get to the bottom of two competing theories, that it jumped from an animal to a human or escaped from a research lab in Wuhan. Politics and geopolitics have complicated the inquiry into the pandemic's origins from the start. And David Frum is here to talk about this, the Atlantic staff writer and former speechwriter for President George W. Bush. David Frum, thanks so much for being here. What a pleasure to join. I wanted to first review with you the two operating hypotheses here. The first, that it was zoonotic spillover or this natural transfer from animal to humans. When did that emerge and gain traction? Well, um, the zoonotic theory emerged early because that's how almost all pandemic viral diseases in the history of mankind have emerged, that, they have, that there has been a cross from an animal into, uh, into humanity. Um, and that's uh, avian flu, swine flu, so many of those. Um, the the lab theory emerged because um, the, the center of the outbreak, or at least the known center of the outbreak, was the city of Wuhan, where China does, in Hubei province, where China does um, a lot of its viral research. Uh, it got weaponized early because some of the people around Donald Trump, not President Trump himself, he wanted to say it was nothing. There was no big deal. Nothing was happening. Nothing to see here. But some of the people around him wanted to make this more China's fault um, so as to exonerate the president and began postulating that this was some kind of Chinese weapons research gone bad. Mm. And so that postulation is also what made it seem at least initially less credible. And then can you talk about the position the WHO took on this earlier this year? that the lab leak theory, well, I believe they said, was, quote, extremely unlikely. Well, let me begin by saying I, I write about politics and Washington. Um, I'm not an expert of any kind on China, and I don't normally cover science. So I'm, I can't take you inside the science. But one thing it might be helpful for listeners to understand is don't think of two theories. Think of two families of theories. For example, um, one idea that is out there is that um, uh, the disease began to spread in um, a rural part of China. Scientists from Wuhan, where they do the Chinese do do their virus research, came to see what the matter was. Some of them 
got sick there, came back to Wuhan, and that explained uh, the outbreak in the city of Wuhan, which is some distance from where the bat caves were. Um, so that's something where it's, you've got a kind of a crossover element. And there are a range of theories. Um, you know, the Chinese were, uh, a scientist was doing experiments um, to understand viruses in the lab. Uh, some biological material was not properly disposed of. That is, that the, the lab theory doesn't necessarily mean anything malicious. It could mean something negligent or careless or just or plain bad luck. So they're the two families of theories. Yes. And I think one of the reasons that the, the World Health Organization was so quick to stomp on the lab theory was the first versions of the lab theory that were put out there um, argued that not only had the, the disease come from a lab, but that it had somehow maliciously been released into the environment. And that's why they jumped on that quickly. And when you talk about the uh, the family, I guess, the family view or the family of theories that suggest that the reason yeah. that people from the lab were ill is in part because they were in these rural areas, are you also responding to the fact that there have been reports, say, in the Wall Street Journal and so on, that we're talking about how in November 2019 that there were researchers from the Wuhan lab that did seek hospital care for right. illnesses that were similar to that of COVID-19? Exactly. Now, there's another thing going on here which also influences how this idea, these ideas were originally received which is at when the disease began to spread in December and January, December um, 2019, January 2020, Western scientists were confronted by two realities. The first was the extreme non-transparency and untruthfulness of Chinese political authorities. Uh, there was a clampdown, they destroyed material, they wouldn't help. At the same time, Western scientists were dealing with um, the transparency and cooperation with their Chinese scientist counterparts. That is, um, as almost in, within days of the hours of the Chinese uh, scientists isolating the genome of the virus, it was posted on the internet. So I have spoken to Western scientists who say, it's true that the political authorities were just as bad as bad could be. But, you know, I'm, I'm on the phone with my counterpart, whom I've worked with over 20 years, Dr. So-and-so or Professor So-and-so in China. And, you know, I ask for stuff. They send it to me by uh, by email. I get it instantly. So what are you talking about? And so it was the contrast between uh, the, the behavior of the Chinese state aroused suspicions, the behavior of the Chinese, Chinese scientists won friends. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate you making that distinction. And you've given us a good overview. And I would love to just dig into each of these things that we've discussed. So for example, you know, the deep political associations or political interests around the origins has made this difficult to talk about and process. One of the things you said was that, um, that Trump initially was trying to find ways to blame China for basically his own mismanagement of this process. And that has led to, at times, um, you know, racist attacks, actually, but also at times, um, him, him sort of flirting with this whole, you know, intentional Chinese bioweapon theory, and then at other times, praising China and, and saying that the leadership is handling this well, especially in the early months of January and February. You also talk about a group of Republicans who were interested in promoting the theory um, or promoting anti-Chinese sentiment as an aggressive foreign policy strategy. Can you talk right. about that a little bit? Yes. Well, the timelines here are very important. I've written two articles about this for The Atlantic. They're posted on The Atlantic website. Um, 
And I, I invite people to take a look because they'll find more detail there, especially what I'm about to say is in the first of the two articles. Um, President Trump's immediate concern when uh, the virus erupted at the end of 2019 was to minimize it and deny it. Um, he had got himself into a trade war with China. And despite having earlier said trade wars are good and easy to win, he was finding that not only was the trade war not good and easy to win, but it was depressing U.S. stock markets and threatening U.S. economic growth at the end of 2019. So his priority at that time was to get, to get some kind of deal with China, any kind of deal that would allow him to drop his own tariffs, get the stock market going, and avert a recession in 2020, which we looked, it looked even before COVID, we looked like we were heading on our way too because of his trade policies. So when this disease began to circulate, he, he didn't want to deal with it. So he, in the course of December and January uh, 19 and 20, and people remember this, he praised China over and over. He specifically praised the leadership of President Xi in China. He specifically praised what a good job they were doing. Now, while he was doing this because of his focus on get me out of my losing trade war, People around him, the more radical people like Steve Bannon and others who had a different kind of agenda like Senator Hong Cotton were saying, it's suspicious that this disease originated where the Chinese viral research is. Um, and we see here an opportunity in Bannon's case to shift blame, um, in Tom Cotton's case to um, ramp up conflict with China. And our interests are a little different from President Trump's. President Trump didn't come around to blaming China for a few months. He gave his most emphatic statement in May, by which time the disease was raging all over the world, in which he called it an attack comparable to 9-11 in Pearl Harbor. And then he backed away from that. So he was unconstant and fitful. But um, the center, the real promoter of this idea within the US government was Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who's got a complicated relationship to President Trump. And he was trying to advance his own foreign policy agenda. I, I've talked for a long time. Let me say one more thing about that. The thing about this that was so perverse is let's say that some version of the lab theory is true. Um, what follows? Uh, some of the China hawks say, well, what follows is we have to hold China to account. What do you mean? I mean, China's big, China's strong. What do you mean by that? Well, what it mostly means is we want to yell at Dr. Fauci on TV. Well, he's not China. If you take seriously that there was some negligent practice in a Chinese lab that caused this disaster, then you have to think, we need more eyes and ears in Chinese labs. We need more supervision. We need more international structures and cooperation. And um, that will take cooperation with allies to insist upon it. It will take some negotiation with China to get it. And if we do, if we ever are successful, the thing the Chinese will say is, okay, you want these standards for us. What about similar standards for yourself? So the, the theory implies more international cooperation, but it's being advanced by people who want less international cooperation. We're talking with David from a staff writer for The Atlantic. His latest article is Trump supporters are getting the lab leak story backward, which uh, he's alluding to why in just his last comments. Trump is also the author of a piece last week called The Pro-Trump Culture War on American Scientists. David Frum, as you may know, has a book called Trumpocalypse, Restoring American Democracy. We're talking about the competing family of theories about COVID's origins and the politics and geopolitics that are complicating the investigations. And you, our listeners, can weigh in if you'd like. What questions or reactions do you have to what you're hearing? What are your thoughts on how this is playing out and will play out politically in the U.S.? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum 
or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. You know, as I listen to you, David, from I, I just hear so many different interests, right? You, you hear about our former President Trump acting in his own best interest. You hear about the politicians acting and motivated by their own interests. You hear about China, as you were saying, not allowing access, not being transparent with information, acting within its best interests. And, and the distinction, I mean, I should I should say here about the Chinese government acting in its best interest. It just leaves me to ask who is acting in the public's best interest? Well, you always hope that politicians interest in a democracy converge with the public. And the surest way of getting reelected is to do a good job um, meeting people's needs. And one of the things that one of the things that made Donald Trump such a weird politician was he thought he could get reelected by telling you that you were wrong. You thought you were doing badly. He would tell you you were doing great. You thought something looked sloppy and stupid. He said it was perfect. And he always believed, I mean, the essence of the Donald Trump business method was you, you offer a terrible product and say it's a great product, a Trump steak or a Trump vodka. Those are not good steaks. Those are not good vodkas. But but he insisted they were. And um, so the person who should be looking out for the public interest is, I mean, a, a, a normal politician would have a deep level. We're hearing about this problem in China at the end of 2019. If this gets out of hand, I'm up for re-election in 2020. If this gets out of hand, it could be bad for me. And so to their normal, we hope, public spirit, and most politicians do have a lot of public spirit, there's also added the accountability that comes from democratic elections. Um, Donald Trump, though, was not a big believer in democracy, as we all know. We'll have more with David Fromm after the break. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about competing ideas about COVID's origins and the politics and geopolitics that are complicating the investigations with David Frum, staff writer for The Atlantic. His latest article is Trump supporters are getting the lab leak story backward. He's also author of a piece last week called The Pro-Trump Culture War on American Scientists. We want to invite your listeners to join us. What questions and reactions do you have about what you're hearing? What are your thoughts on how this will play out in the United States. Give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can email us at forum at kqed.org. And David, from this listener tweets, far more important is knowing why the U.S. was not prepared for a pandemic, regardless of where it came from. That is where we need to spend our time and energy. There is no good reason COVID was or is as bad as it became. What do you think about that, David, from I do recall you seeing your colleague at the Atlantic, Daniel Engber, also take issue with what he calls the simple unconvincing notion that we need to understand the origins of COVID to stave off future pandemics. David from do we have you muted here? Well, while we try to uh, reconnect with David from 
I'd also like to read you a little bit from his piece where he wrote, two questions have dominated politics throughout the coronavirus pandemic. Democrats and public health experts have asked, what should we do? Former President Donald Trump, for his part, minimized the need to act. He instead spoke incessantly about a very different question. Whom should we blame? Trump writes, now the Biden administration is succeeding at bringing the pandemic under control within the United States. Trump's preferred alternative question, whom should we blame, is reclaiming attention. And we're talking with David Frum about how he sees this playing out. And I don't know, David Frum, if you were able to hear that comment a moment ago, but just about how important it is to really know what the origins are, as opposed to just dealing with it. Hello? I'm yeah, sorry, David, I didn't yeah. hear that. I beg your pardon. Sorry. We were briefly interrupted there. I didn't, I didn't hear the question. I beg your pardon. So there is this argument that, uh, that from a public health standpoint, really, um, that it, it doesn't matter so much to understand the origins of COVID to stave off future pandemics. And this was also something that your colleague at The Atlantic, Daniel Ingber, wrote about. He says, knowing the source of the pandemic matters only at the margins. What do you think about this in light of a listener comment that we also received saying that that's really where they'd like the focus to be is just on how to deal with it? Well, well, it does matter because, um, look, it, it, it's not a good story about China either way um, that you know, what, here's a way to think about this, about with, with the Chinese. Supposing the zoonotic theory is, is correct. Um, it's really striking how many of the world's epidemics come from China, as opposed to, say, from India. Um, India is equally crowded and equally poor, but it's not, it's not been an important source of, that, of virus infections. And why is that? And the answer is, well, the great majority of Indian people follow a vegetarian diet. Um, and so they just they are at less intimate contact with animals that are poorly cared for, which China um, has a, a meeting eating culture and a very indiscriminate meat eating culture. Um, and they live much closer to animals. And so from um, uh, what we call the Spanish flu probably originated in China, um, most of the certainly of the, the avian and flus of the past 15 years have originated in China because of their, their food practices. So that's one set of uh, questions that the world would have. If it's from a lab where the, they didn't take proper care, that's another set of questions. But I think one of the lessons of this new viral era is we are we, there are no walls against viruses. We are all in each other's um, viral pool. And we the whole world has a concern with what are China's practices. And we all, I think, have a right to raise our voices and to say, we think there need to be some standards. Now, the question is, are they at your markets or are they at your labs? Um, because the Chinese are very powerful. They don't listen to everything we say. But after this disaster, this global disaster, now hitting India so terribly, um, we can build global coalitions to enforce some standards on China if we know what standards to ask for. And to know what to ask for means we have to know where this virus came from. Well, Stanford Dr. David Relman and 17 other scientists talked about the benefit of knowing where it came from as critical for informing global strategies to mitigate the risk of future outbreaks. But one of the things that I'm struck by in this letter um, is that it also includes at its conclusion this statement. In this time of unfortunate anti-Asian sentiment in some countries, we know that at the beginning of the pandemic, it was Chinese doctors, scientists, journalists, and citizens who shared with the world crucial information about the spread of the virus, often at great 
personal cost. And the letter goes on to say we should show the same determination in promoting a dispassionate science-based discourse on this difficult but important issue. To me, D David Frum, it's clear these scientists, and in my view, are anticipating and reflecting a deep concern by some Asian Americans that the lab leak theory, even if it's ultimately disproven, will feed existing anti-Asian racism related to the pandemic. Do you see that as a possibility? And should we be cautious about how we talk about the Chinese? I, I, um, I, I try always to speak about the Chinese state um, and uh, the, the rulers of China. Um, and it's been true that many of the people who have brought advanced our knowledge have been chi Chinese scientists, some, some expat, I mean, some Asian Americans or Chinese Americans, some Chinese nationals who work in the West, um, and, and some Chinese nationals who, who work in China. Um, and that, that, as I stressed at the beginning, that the strictly science part of this story shows the possibilities of a global community. Um, the, the political structures of China, though, are repressive. There's no getting around that. And I don't think we should let um, our, our, our concerns about how people might hear the truth affect our concern for the truth. And, and in particular, I, I wrote something today uh, on Twitter where I talked about the, the bad practices in Chinese markets. And this made a lot of people who follow my Twitter account upset because they it's, it's, it's discriminatory to, to talk about these practices. Well, these practices exist in many countries, not only China, but they have been vectors from the Hong Kong flu of uh, the 1960s, the Asian flu of the 1950s, recent bird flus. Um, Food handling is really important. And even if it turns out that this disease had a natural origin, it still implicates Chinese food handling practices. And if your kids were out of school for a year because of bad food handling practices in China, I think you have a right to say, I've got a voice here that they should have better food handling practices. Well, in your recent piece, the one titled Trump supporters are getting the lab leak story backwards, you say, suppose the lab leak happened. And then you ask, what then? And you do outline for us what should inform our relationship to China. Can you talk about what should inform it? Can you talk about why you feel like what it really does, as you say in your piece, the opposite of what is urged by the anti-China hawks? Well, many people imagine some kind of, the phrase you're again and again is hold China to account. And I don't think people have taken yet on board what it means for the United States to share this planet with a, a second power that is nearly the economic equal of the United States, nearly the technological equal of the United States, in a way that the old Soviet Union never was. They are too big to bully. Um, now, when they do things that we don't like, sometimes we may need to use some muscle, but the United States doesn't have enough muscle by itself to do it. In which case, if you want to put some muscle to them, you have to build a coalition. And India is going to be a very important partner here. They are suffering so terribly from this virus, but but uh, you know the EU nations, Great Britain, Japan, um, other nations in Southeast Asia, you'll have to mobilize them as, as a group. And the, the, this all anticipates the some of the tough negotiations we're going to have over climate emissions. We're going to have to build in some kind of global standards, backed perhaps by tariffs at the border. We say if these goods don't meet a certain climactic standard, they can't enter, um, not just the U.S. market, but this we're going to draw the fence around a really big and really ex attractive market. And if you want to enter it, you're going to have to meet some climate standards. And something similar is what you have in mind with, with viruses, which is to say, if this, is, if this does come from a lab, you know, we just need eyes and we need some eyes in that lab. And we're not telling you not to do this research, not to have labs. I mean, you're a scientific superpower, but meet international hygiene standards and have some accountability of what's going on at the lab. Ironically, we had some of that access pre-Trump and President Trump dismantled.
So what do you think of Biden's approach right now, where he is asking for this investigation and saying that he's going to work with other nations to help press China, but ultimately to increase communication and interaction? Yeah. Well, it's possible that the answer to this question of the origin may be an intelligence matter, not a um, uh, not a scientific matter. That is the way you'll get the answer is not by looking at the virus in a lab or studying the virus itself, but by looking for people who who know things, um, who are willing to come forward and talk. And and there you may discover the person who has the knowledge who wants to get out of town and tell it may end up in a place like Taiwan or rather than in the United States. And so that's where you'll need the cooperation that other other regional players may end up holding the intelligence information you need to crack the code. Let me go to caller Bill in Petaluma. Hi, Bill. Hi there. Thanks for taking my call. I just wanted to ask your guests briefly about um, uh, the WHO and kind of what teeth they might have in uh, kind of managing security in these labs around the world, kind of more so in the future, less so about the recent incident. And I think about something like the the COVAX situation where, you know, countries, some richer countries got vaccines sooner and earlier and like, you know, they, they did, there wasn't really teeth to manage the, you know, the equal distribution of that. So I, I'm just really question centered around what, what could be done for the future to prevent. Bill, thanks. Yeah, well, thanks. Um, well, the, the who question illustrates the problem here, um, which is you can, if this problem had erupted in, some much poorer and weaker country. You could imagine the poor. I mean, when 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 uh, Ebola erupted in West Africa in the, in the middle 2010s, who did a great job? Um, because who was able to lean on a country like Senegal or a country like Liberia and bring pressure to bear on them? To be, but the who is just China is just too big. And we saw that when China and, and the World Health Organization came into conflict, it was the World Health Organization that stepped aside. The World Health Organization that agreed that no independent scientists would would come early into Wuhan. Um, so we are going to need to build institutions that are multilateral but not quite global, because. What, because China, you, you want China to be a partner, but they can't have a veto. And inside the World Health Organization, as we discovered, they had a kind of a veto and, and they wielded it in a way that made the problem worse. What, what, whatever the origin, they certainly did. The authorities were certainly not sharing knowledge, not being transparent, covering up at crucial days in December and January. Well, dash on tweets, instead of the obsession with Trump and his supporters, the media and scientists should look into the mirror and ask the person facing you, how have you failed? There yeah. is this question. Yeah, well, this, I mean, yes, go this ahead, is the David key, This is the key point. So I think a lot of the, the people in, um, and I'm not saying this is about this particular communicator, but a lot of the people who are very excited about the lab leak story are actually not very interested in China. They just hate Dr. Fauci so much. And they hate, there's some junior reporter at the New York Times who tweeted something that was too dism very dismissive of the lab leak theory at a time too early to be dismissive about it. So, let, let's make those people the villains. You think, how is that productive? I'm sorry, so maybe the maybe junior New York Times uh, reporters shouldn't tweet things. Maybe they shouldn't have a Twitter account at all. Uh, and maybe you don't. Maybe Dr. Fauci should have, in February and March of 2020, known everything through some kind of magic process that he knew a year later, that scientists knew a year later. But a lot of what this is about that that is that what that comment shows it. They want to have a fight with domestic culture war opponents. And that's why this story is exciting. And that has not been a path to better understanding. It's been a path to much worse understanding, because the answer is in China. It's not on Fox News.
But there is this lingering association between the theory and the Trump administration that complicates the way we as individuals and as the media process this narrative that I think a lot of people are thinking about right now. Well, um, I think a, a way to think about this is to think about um, the McCarthy era of the late 40s and early 50s. Um, there was communist penetration of the lab at Los Alamos, the Soviets stole atomic secrets, and there were um, it, it, communist spies in important places in the British government, especially, but also in the US government in the 1940s. Um, and that got tidied up by about 1948, 49. Um, Senator McCarthy appears on the scene in 1950 and starts throwing wild, crazy allegations. And um, in the history books, a lot of people, I mean, it was a disgraceful episode in American history and he destroyed a lot of careers and he attacked a lot of people. And even the people who he found who were genuinely guilty, um, there, there was a former communist who was in the camp dentist at a military base and he identified that person. And yes, there really was a co former communist dentist at a military base. Um, but so he pushed the debate in ways that made it hard for people to see the truth. And I think one of the things that happened in the early days of the lab leak theory um, was so many people like Peter Navarro and Secretary Pompeo and Senator Trump said such, such wildly irresponsible and truly wrong things. It's a Chinese super weapon um, that, yeah, it, it did damage the reception for a more accurate version of the facts because the facts were associated with people who said such irresponsible things. And Yes, we all have to be mindful that even crazy people can sometimes say things that are true, but we, but, but people who get indignant, why didn't you listen to the person, the crazy person need to be mindful? Well, that person really did sound kind of crazy. I mean, there were some far-fetched theories there, right? I, in terms of... Well, well, you see it from the same... I quote in the second article I wrote, a Rush Limbaugh monologue in which Rush Limbaugh pivoted in the same paragraph from saying it's a Chi-Com superweapon to saying it's the common cold and completely harmless. So how can it be a super weapon and also completely harmless? Um, <laughs> the same people, the same person in this case said it in, like in adjoining sentences. It was the same thought because the goal always was not to understand what is the challenge we face, but to find some desperate way not that to exonerate President Trump from his massive neglect of this problem and his massive denial and his insistence. It's no big deal. The important thing is everyone pretend that things are fine and reelect me. Greg writes, the catastrophic failure of the U.S. response to the virus at all levels is the real lesson to be learned. Not that we have to go to war with China. For decades, we have been warned by virologists and epidemiologists that we are in an era in which we'll see more and more viruses, and we did nothing in preparation. Let me go to Robert in San Francisco. Hi, Robert. Join us. Hi, good morning. Uh, thank you for this very interesting program. Uh, I am a scientist, and um, I've been reading uh, the latest information that's coming out on this issue. And it seems like the evidence is increasingly pointing to lab negligence uh, leading to the spread of the virus. And my question is, uh, given all the political ramifications, both domestic and international with the Chinese state, uh, how does the guest see separating these issues, science versus politics, and how do we go forward uh, towards resolving this problem? Robert, I think you just really hit the point of this this segment on the head. How do we separate these two moving forward and and go forward, David, from in your view? Well, well I think we, at, at some point, we're going to have to arrive at a set of asks from um, the Chinese authorities, whether they're about food handling, whether they're about labs, and say, here's the asks. And th this list of asks presented to you 
not by the United States alone and not by the World Health Organization, but by a community of affiliated nations. And um, if you say, great, if you say, yes, that's terrific, and we'll abide by the same standards ourselves, and you can have a role in inspecting our practices. How about domestically? If you say no. Um, mm -hmm. Yes. And, I beg your pardon? And then also, how about domestically moving forward as well? Sorry to interrupt you. Okay. Well, how about domestically? Is I, I think we, as we move forward domestically, um, just not having President Trump on the scene spreading malice, um, having uh, the decision-making in the hands of more responsible people who want to solve problems and not fight culture wars, that'll be a great help. Well, David Fromm, I really appreciate you speaking to us today and how you are trying to review and make sense of some of the ways that this is playing out politically, because I'm sure you are anticipating a lot happening in the next couple of months, especially with this 90-day report. Just leave us with a final thought. We have 30 seconds. The final thought is the answer may be a, a defector, a person who may be right now on his or her way to Taiwan, um, and we need to keep our ears open for that person's evidence. It may not be possible for the scientists to solve the problem by purely scientific methods. And there's a chance that we may never know, really, ultimately, what the origin is. And, and you are so right about that. David Frum, staff writer for The Atlantic. His latest article is Trump supporters are getting the lab leak story backwards. His other piece related to this is called The Pro-Trump Culture War on American Scientists. Thanks so much for talking with us. Thanks to our listeners for their questions and comments. And thanks to Susan Britton for producing this segment. Stay with us. We have more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them, with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.